Hello and welcome to Riffs on Riffs, where we explore the surprising connection between songs past and present and share the fascinating stories that make music a universal language. I'm your host, Joe Watson. I'm here with my co-host, Toby Braswell. So, Tob, how are you feeling these days? To be honest, Joe, I'm feeling a lot of things as of late. Now, there's you're feeling all the feels? All the feels, all mm-hmm. the feels for sure. I mean, there's certainly been a lot of change in our day-to-day due to COVID-19 and the pandemic. Yeah. But my thoughts have also been centered on the death of George Floyd and so many others that have sparked protests across the country. Now, these protests have all been focused on racial equality and social change to eliminate systemic racism and police brutality. It's certainly a worthy cause, and with any protest, there's always an underlying sentiment that voices just aren't being heard. So we wanted to change things up a little bit on this episode and not just focus on a single sample or an artist, but rather focus on a theme. So we're going to discuss how the universal language of music has helped these voices to be heard, not just in our country, but across the world. So let's talk today about some of the best protest songs ever made and the stories behind them. So when we first discussed this idea, it just felt right. But I had a hard time trying to figure out exactly where to start. Now, there's so many great protest songs to discuss in so little time. But I feel a great place to start was a song that the Beatles made called Revolution. Ah, well, that is such a good song that they recorded multiple versions of it. But the one that most people are familiar with is the single version. That's the one that kicks off with that like gritty guitar tone that quite literally almost fried the mixing console. Let me say this, I wasn't always a Beatles fan. You know, I just wasn't, you know, wasn't around the music, wasn't exposed to it till later. But I remember, man, when I was in school, they used this for a commercial. Mm-hmm. Man, I was I was like, man, who did this song? This is great. And it was just all, it was like a pop commercial. I want to say it was like Pepsi or Coke yeah, yeah. or something like that. Revolution appears on the Beatles' self-titled double album released in 1968, the White Album. At that time, there were a lot of protests that were taking place regarding the Vietnam War. And the Beatles were being pressured to write a song that spoke on it. You know what? I have to chime in here, Toby, because I'm with you. I was... I mean, I like the Beatles. I'm not a huge Beatles fan. It's, it's, they've never really been my thing. But I feel like this might be our last episode of Riffs because <laughs> I'm pretty sure that Evergreen CEO, Michael DeLoya, may be the biggest Beatles fan ever. So, <laughs> you might, so be, right. You might we, be right. We may be off the roster here in a little bit. <laughs> but anyway, getting back to Revolution, John Lennon wrote the lyrics that expresses his feelings on two fronts. First, he shows empathy for those that feel the need for change, while at the same time, disagreeing with the tactics of a political movement called the New Left. So I've heard this song many times, but never really looked at all three verses. Now, it seems that Lennon wasn't opposed to social change, but wanted to hear a plan before the current system was done away with and before money was donated. What a concept. (laughs) Right, Right. What's your plan, right? What's your plan? It's funny how a lot of things change over time, but a lot of things don't, right? Mm -hmm. So these are some of the same sentiments that are extremely dissatisfied with certain aspects of the police force, right? With the current conversation that we're having right now with defunding the police and a lot of people just having the conversation around what needs to happen. Again, how about we have a plan, you know, maybe even a conversation about what that would be and what it would look like. (laughs) So one of the other things that I found interesting is that this song, Revolution, was actually the B-side for the Beatles single, Hey Jude. This is the second episode in a row where a B-side ends up being very popular. Last episode, it was Sol Mikasa by Manu Dibango. So while not being as popular as Hey Jude, Revolution more than held its own, and it reached number 12 on the Hot 100. 
So the Beatles were certainly not the only ones that wrote music about Vietnam. I believe there's another artist that we discussed on a past episode as well. Joe, can you do the honors? Ah, uh, yes, sir. The iconic Marvin Gaye. His song, What's Going On, was released on May 21st, 1971, and was featured on his eponymously titled 11th Studio Album, which was released on a Motown subsidiary label called Tamiya. So here's a random fact. Tamiya was actually the original label founded by Barry Gordy, but it was later just sort of folded into Motown Records. What's Going On is actually a concept album that followed the life of a Vietnam veteran after returning home. Now, I never knew before that it was a concept album, and you know that I love concept albums. I can't believe I missed that. I did not know that you were such a fan of concept albums. So, all right, what's your favorite? Wow, that's a tough question, man. That's a tough one. So uh, there's Deltron 3030. Mr. Lift has got an album called Phantom. But if I had to choose like just one, it'd probably be the Minstrel Show by a hip-hop group called Little Brother. Mm -hmm. uh, you have Ninth Wonders production combines with Fonte's and Big Pooh's lyrics. Nothing but classic material on that. But MF Doom and Danger Mouse, I know you're familiar with those guys. Oh, yeah. They have a collab album called The Mouse Behind the Mask. That is also one of my favorites as well. Great music. What's yours? So if we're talking of all time, I'd have to say Rush's 2112, simply because it was so influential on my formative years. I think Coheed and Cambria make great concept albums, and I love the way that Claudio Sanchez weaves the art and the storytelling and the great music. Tobe, you're a comic book guy. If you haven't checked it out, you should. Anyway, back to Marvin. Most definitely. What's Going On is the first album to credit Marvin as the producer, while also being the first to credit the in-house studio band known as the Funk Brothers. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe it's just me, but knowing that this was a concept album really makes me want to go and take a deeper listen to it. Now, the record's title track was actually written by Ronaldo Benson. Wait, wait, wait. So you mean founding member, bass singer of the Motown group, The Four Tops, Ronaldo Benson? The one and only. Nice. So Benson witnessed an altercation between the police and protesters, and it obviously had a profound effect on him as he began to write and work with another lyricist named Al Cleveland, hmm. who just happened to be his upstairs neighbor. I can't quite put my finger on it, but there's something about Al's last name that I just like. It's got a nice ring to it, Al Cleveland. I know, right? It got a nice ring to it. I agree. I agree. So, well, originally Benson wanted the Four Tops to do the song, but they refused it because it was a protest song. Now, I'm thinking that this group thought, and rightfully so, that performing a song like this could cost them fans and thus sales. So he then approached Joan Baez to sing, but again was unsuccessful. Well, so then he offered it to Marvin Gaye, including, hey, Marvin, you can have part of the royalties. So Gaye added some of his own lyrics and his personal feelings to the song, and then he went to lay it down in the booth in 1970. But Motown refused to release it at first because they didn't think it was commercial enough. It was eventually released and proved everyone wrong by reaching number two on the Billboard Pop Singles chart, wildly considered as being one of the best songs of all time, according to Rolling Stone magazine. Now, it might seem funny to say, but I couldn't imagine a world without this song. I can't remember the first time I heard it, but every time I do hear it, I always take stock of where I am, what I'm doing, and what I stand for. And just as important, what I won't stand for. Yeah, it is definitely a powerful song. And like you, now I kind of want to revisit the entire album because I didn't realize the threads that connected everything. But lines like this, don't punish me with brutality, are a sad indication of just how little things have changed. 
I mean, what, another 50 years have gone by and we're still asking what's going on. All right, so let's change genres a little bit and switch to folk music. So I know you're a fan of all music. Where do you, where do you come out on the folk spectrum? Well, I will admit that I don't listen to it often, but I do appreciate it mainly because of the fact that it doesn't follow the pop formula in the sense of lyrical style and composition. A lot of us songwriters don't do it strictly for the money. It's about the art of communicating a message, whether it be about broken homes or broken hearts, whether it's about making a point in jest or in protest. Yeah, and folk has definitely had a long history of storytelling and protest, which takes us to our next artist, a folk singer by the name of Woody Guthrie, who wrote the song a lot of us grew up singing in grade school music class, This Land is Your Land. So I think to fully understand the meaning and the significance of this song, you first have to understand Woody. So Woody had a tragic childhood, to say the least. He witnessed his family home being destroyed by a fire, witnessed an accident that claimed the life of his sister, and then lost his mother to sickness years later. His family was poor, and he and his siblings were sent to live with a family in Texas. Now, he got married at 19, but found it difficult to provide for his family during the Dust Bowl period and the Depression. And like so many others in his position, he left his family to find employment in California. Now, he wrote songs about his experience, which earned him the nickname the Dust Bowl Troubadour. Well, in 1940, he wrote his most famous song, This Land is Your Land, as a rebuttal to Irving Berlin's God Bless America. So, so I know what you're thinking here, Tobe. <laughs> rebuttal, right? That's a strong word to God Bless America. Man, it is a strong word. I mean, if this was a court of law and Irving said, God bless America, and a rebuttal was like Guthrie saying, hey, God, I object. Don't bless it, right? <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, rebuttal is a strong, strong word. Thank goodness I don't think he was saying that, although sometimes I look and I wonder. <laughs> but uh, truth be told, God bless America was being played everywhere, and Guthrie grew to hate it. So I guess it's really not unlike any song today that gets overplayed. So there are several different verses of this song that we don't usually sing in the grade school classrooms with lyrics that were meant to discuss the huge income disparities in America, especially during the Great Depression. Here's a verse. There was a big high wall there that tried to stop me. The sign was painted, said private property. But on the backside, it didn't say nothing. This land was made for you and me. And then this one. One bright sunny morning in the shadow of the steeple by the relief office, I saw my people. As they stood hungry, I stood there wondering if God blessed America for me. So those certainly paint a very different picture than the more well-known verses. Agreed. But the song was written so many years ago, but has been sung as recently as the Obama inaugural celebration at the Lincoln Memorial. It's certainly a very popular song. I mean, you won't meet an adult that's lived in this country for any length of period of time that hasn't heard or been taught this song. Now, what's truly amazing is that Guthrie was actually blacklisted as a communist for being outspoken. And that, of course, made it hard for him to earn money as a musician. Yeah. You know, ironically, part of the reason he didn't record all of those verses is because of the McCarthyism of the 50s and that whole threat of communism and being jailed for being anti-American. So, again, you know, the more things change, sometimes I kind of just shake my head and wonder how we suck so badly at being human beings. Well, Guthrie had a tough time earning money for his musical efforts, and one of the places he got a chance to perform was in front of children at summer camps. Now, this song has been recorded hundreds of times, and the influence that he's had on folk music is evident. 
by the fact that folk singer icon Bob Dylan names Woody Guthrie as being one of his main musical influences. So, Tom, did you know that Woody Guthrie was an early pioneer of sampling? Sampling, huh? Yeah. Oh, no, I, di- I did not know that. I want you to explain. Break that down for me. Well, he was always on the lookout for tunes. So he would, he would write all his lyrics, right? And then he would actually just go find music and that he could set his lyrics to. And in this case, he took the 1930 gospel recording, When the World's on Fire, which is sung by the Carter family. And he just said, okay, I'm going to put my lyrics to this land is your land to this music. It's a little weird to hear the original song after we've been exposed to Guthrie's lyrics so much. Yeah, it, it, it's a little sort of... I don't it, know, unsettling almost. It's just weird. It's, <laughs> I wouldn't go so far to say it's creepy because it's not, but it's just right. like, huh, that's weird. In a way, I also think it's it's genius, right? I think it's genius. I think that he would change the lyrics while he was traveling to kind of suit his opinion and his his emotion. And but the the melody is so easy to remember. That's why kids across camps all over the country knew it. I mean, that's genius in a way to why create something new. Just use that. I bet you we could create an audience sing-along right now if we just started. (laughs) Let's not, but I bet you we could. All right, Tobe, I would like to spend the rest of this episode discussing protest songs that deal with another issue that has been with us for far too long, police brutality. And I also can't believe this has to even be said, but I'm going to say it anyway, Black Lives Matter. And if you're someone that for some absurd reason doesn't understand that or you want to offer some sort of asinine rebuttal, then look, I'm simply going to take a page from Seth Rogen's playbook and tell you, stop listening to this show because I cannot deal with the nonsense anymore. Black lives do matter. And no one is saying that they matter more, but we are saying that they matter as much as anyone else's life. You know, it's funny when I get in these conversations with people about the statement Black Lives Matter uh, and how many people have an issue with it. Some don't, but some do. And it's, it's interesting. I remember... After the the Boston incident, mm-hmm. you know, we were saying Boston's strong. No one said all cities are strong, right? Uh, when we talk about breast cancer, no one says, "Hey, what what about colon cancer or this cancer or that?" You know, no one's saying that any of any of that, any of those other things aren't important. But hey, let's be specific. What what we want to focus on at this moment, and uh, I don't know. It's just, it's like you said. It is. Uh, it's. Head scratching, right? To say the least. To, to say the least, why uh, we have to continually talk about it. But here we are. And here we are. Now, some of the songs we're going to talk about are controversial, and there are certainly many layers to the conversation. So, what do you say today we place our focus on the protest themes of the tracks that we're going to talk about? Sounds good, man. Where do you want to start? So, we're going to head back to 1988 and the debut of NWA's Straight Out of Compton which contains a song that's title leaves very little room for interpretation. So I believe you are referring to F the Police. Now, I cleaned that up since this is a family show. Well, that is the song. And back in the day, I wore that cassette out. And it was, look, it's pretty obvious. To me, the purpose of that song, it's obviously a protest song. All you have to do is listen to it. And it's pretty clear. So with lyrics like... A young man got a bad because I'm brown and not the other color. So police think they have the authority to kill a minority. I'd say it's fairly apparent what the message is, if you bother to listen to the song. Well, and that's an interesting point. I wonder how many people would just get into an uproar simply because of the title, but they never bother to go any deeper and understand the meaning or the context of what the song is all about. Well, it's a lot easier to be offended than it is to understand someone or attempt to empathize with their experience. Now, one thing I will say though, Joe, is the older I get, 
I have to check myself and make sure that I really listen to young people and what they're saying, right? Because sometimes, you know, us us being older now, we forget about what it meant to be a, a kid. Yeah, I think the world would be a better place if people just tried to do that more and also thought for themselves instead of being spoon-fed someone else's opinion. But but I digress. So the song would reach number 25 on the hip-hop and R&B charts in 2015, coinciding with the release of the NWA biopic movie. Now, Joe, I know you abhor violence of any kind as much as I do. And certainly the violence and misogyny of this entire album is not something we condone. But you also can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. So, correct. Look, this album chronicles the reality of life for many people. And sadly, that reality has changed very little when it comes to police brutality. It's also interesting how different artists can get away with different things. Now, you remember on our episode on The Clash, easily one of our favorite episodes, right? So where we talked briefly about the song Guns of Brixton. Yes, that would also be another song about police brutality. I'm just going to read a few of the lyrics here. When they kick at your front door, how are you going to come? With your hands on your head or on the trigger of your gun? You can crush us. You can bruise us, but you'll have to answer to the guns of Brixton. Well, that sure sounds to me like advocacy for meeting force with lethal force, no? Right, exactly. But I don't know, somehow because it's the clash and they were pioneers and avant-garde, it's okay. But if you get into the gritty reality of the black experience, especially if you use language authentic to that experience, it's not okay. And look, we would be foolish and naive not to acknowledge that the clash was a white band. So that has to factor in there somewhere. Sure. Guns of Brixton was released in 1979, but just a few years earlier, we had a song with a similar theme, but toned down a bit for public consumption. Well, I believe you are referring to the 1973 song from Bob Marley and the Wailers, I Shot the Sheriff. Yes, sir. Marley had this to say about the song's meaning. I want to say I shot the police, but the government would have made a fuss, so I said I shot the sheriff instead. But it's the same idea justice. Well, of course, the lyrics also explicitly state that it was in self-defense. So it's, you know, it's to me, it's interesting that Marley has been commercialized so much over the years since his death. I'm, I'm not sure how many people today recognize him for his activism. He was not a man afraid to take a stand, whether that was advocating for pan-Africanism or in this case against police injustice. And once again, we have an example, intentional or not, of kind of a whitewashing of the message. Because in 74, literally a year later, Eric Clapton covers the song and it soars straight to number one. Look, it's a great cover. I love the tune. It's been inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. But it certainly takes on a different spin when it's performed by a white guy from England. Well, now it's time to fast forward a couple decades and talk about another protest song that was garnered even more attention on the topic of police brutality. Joe, where were you when the Rodney King verdict was announced? Uh, well, that verdict came down on April 29th of 92, and I vividly remember being on campus at Ohio University and being stunned at the acquittals, just like the rest of the world. So where were you at? I remember being in school and actually talking to some classmates that were upset with the riots that were happening at the time. And trying to explain to them that riots and is different than revolution, right? And I, I think that that just needed to be said. I remember being the only kid that looked like me in the classroom and having to literally 
I felt like I was, you know, fighting by myself, right. you know, essentially Absolutely. defending the point like, hey, I don't agree with violence, but at the same time, you know, this is revolution, very similar to a Boston Tea Party or, or things of that nature. This this country was was founded on revolution, hoping that things could change and be better. For those of you that are too young to know that whole Rodney King story and the riots and the aftermath, please look it up. We've got George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery. These are just the latest in a really long list. So please educate yourself, then speak up and be a part of the change. Well, back in 1990, Ice-T had formed a metal band called Body Count. And in 1992, they released the debut album of the same name. Yeah, and it contained a track called Cop Killer. And I think from the title, you can probably guess the lyrical content. Yeah, uh, pretty obvious, right? <laughs> pretty obvious. It pretty explicitly stated in the song with lines like, Cop killer, better him than me, cop killer, F police brutality. He's not really pulling any punches here at all. I mean, it's very clear. Yeah, and it's fictional, right? So it's a first-person fictional, again, let's stress that, narrative account of a character who's fed up with police brutality. Ice-T describes it as a, quote, a warning, not a threat to authority that says, Yo, police, we're human beings. Treat us accordingly. You know, Ice-T is probably one of the only guys to have uh, played a gangster and then a cop in the same lifetime. <laughs> it made history doing both, right? He's very convincing. So as you can imagine, controversy ensued, and we could spend an entire episode on that alone. I mean, we had President Bush and Vice President Dan Quayle rallying against it. Al and Tipper Gore got the PMRC into the act. Moses himself was up in arms. Moses? Moses. Charlton Heston. Close enough. You know what I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. All right. Well, Body Count eventually pulled the song from the record, but they did give it away as a free single. And Ice-T would go on to say this. I didn't need people to come in and really back me up on the First Amendment. I needed people to come in and say, Ice-T has grounds to make this record. I have the right to make it because the cops are killing my people. I'm reminded of another previous episode and another debut album that contained a first-person narrative of the mind of a killer. Ah, so I believe you were referring to the Talking Heads and their song, Psycho Killer. (laughs) Man, do you remember all the controversy that got stirred up, the Senate hearings, the lawsuits that ensued? Uh, Flag on the play, I I think I detect sarcasm. (laughs) Yeah, well... It's because it's talking heads and it's arty and it's nuanced lyrics. It's not like those graphic and raw accounts that are a little too real. So it must be okay. Yeah, again, sarcasm. Another flag on the play. (laughs) I guess I'm just frustrated by some of the hypocrisy and the willful ignorance in the name of outrage that keeps happening. Well, these are multifaceted issues, and certainly we recognize the safety and freedoms provided by law enforcement. But we also can't continue to turn a blind eye to systemic racism and police brutality. Correct. So change needs to happen. Somehow, we need to support and encourage the good while finding a way to eradicate the evil. Lines like some of those who work forces are the same that burn crosses from Rage Against the Machine's 1992 song, Killing in the Name, should not feel so timely 20-plus years later. Well, as Childish Gambino says in his 2018 protest song, this is America. And hopefully we are finally at a tipping point where real and lasting change can happen. I hope so too, my friend. And you know that I love and support you. So anything that I can do, anything the audience can do, let's do it, right? Let's stop talking about it. Start making change happen. But in the meantime, unfortunately, that's all the time we have left for today's unusually heavy episode. But these are heavy times. 
Agreed. But music not only gives a powerful voice to the protester, it is a universal language that can unite and soothe. And we definitely need more of that. And one thing I want to focus on is the uniting aspect of music. You know, that, you know, I've been in a couple protests over the years and uh, I remember singing We Shall Overcome. And if you've ever been in a protest at all, Joe, I will tell you that it is nerve wracking. Right. You are yes. nervous. You don't yes. know what could potentially happen. We are all about peace, you know, and, and just like, hey, we're, we're upset with this incident. We don't want any trouble. We just want to be heard. And it's something how the power of music, it just it calmed everyone. Just singing that song, We Shall Overcome, over and over again, how, how powerful it was. I'm hoping we can get there. Right. So people can hear that and feel that empathize. I am with you, my friend. So let's all get out there and do our part to make that happen. In the meantime, thank you all for listening. And we'll catch you next time for Riffs on Riffs. Keep listening. Huzzah. Thanks for listening to Riffs on Riffs. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on your Apple Podcast app. Riffs on Riffs is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thanks to executive producers, Joan Andrews and Michael D'Aloya. Producer, audio engineer, Eric Coltnow. And assistant producer, Declan Roars. You can find Riffs on Riffs anywhere and everywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. I'm Toby Braswell. And I'm your co-host, Joe Watson. Thank you for listening to Riffs on Riffs. Hey, what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff, as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.